Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Two matches down and Ulster's 100% record is intact after a routine win over Zebra in Italy. Joining me to discuss that is our resident rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, it's fun. All good, Jonathan. And from much sunnier times, Richard Morgan. Hello, Richard. Greetings, gentlemen. Good to be back with you. I can see that uh, South English coast sun just gleaming off your face there coming in through the window yes we had uh, a bit of rain the past few days don't worry it's we're not uh, we don't miss it but um the weather is to be kind this week again and uh, i may get the legs topped up in time to return to northern <laughs> ireland next week <laughs> have to be looking looking your best for your uh, yeah. ensemble at, uh, <laughs> i've got a new gilet coming next week too which is good news for john dixon i'll be surprised if you're rocking the gilet at your next game given that it'll be uh Almost November, that's it. You doubt this man's ability to wear a gilet in any and all <laughs> weather conditions. So <laughs> I'm just delighted that my fashion continues to raise interest on this podcast <laughs> as much as it does. Rugby <laughs> journalists, a, a famously well-turned-out group of people, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Michael Sadler, undoubtedly the best. That jacket he wears is fantastic. Anyway, we're digressing, boys. First up, Zebra 3, Ulster 36. So after a 33-point win, um, everybody really happy? Uh, well, let's have a look at one of the questions. Ken Adams says, were Ulster not showing their hand or were they actually totally bereft of coherent play? So the, the scoreline on the surface, I, I'm sure all of our listeners watched the match anyway, but anybody who didn't might look at that scoreline and think, what a performance from Ulster. But uh, yes, who wants to come in and, and assess the... What was the word being bandied about? Disjointed? Disjointed yeah. was the favourite the favorite word for it, yeah. Well, not Dan McFarlane's favourite word for it. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't. Um, yeah, okay, this this wasn't a pristine, polished performance by Ulster by no means. There's no doubt about that. But you know what? If you look at the first two, two rounds of the competition, the assignment against Glasgow was ultimately to get a win and probably a bonus point. The assignment against Zebra was to go out to Parma, a place where Ulster have not always performed well and teams do mm-hmm. struggle a bit there. Um, I cast your minds back to the home game last season when Zebra went down to 13 players. And I think you could pretty say that it was a disjointed performance by Ulster that night too, even though they won it handsomely. But Ulster have 10 points. It's mission accomplished. There were a few things in the second half that maybe you would have asked a few questions as to was there a bit of structure here or was there no structure um he's used 29 players in the past two weeks that's a big plus i think they have to look at the pluses here as they go go forward the back line pretty good on paper last week but maybe didn't deliver with the accuracy and and i think that's where it is they weren't as accurate as they could be they weren't clinical when they needed to be I think they got bogged down going for a penalty try one time with about seven scrums in a row um, when maybe they needed to maybe change the option a wee bit and, and, and let that back line flash. Um, I know Jonathan was on the, on the press conference afterwards and, and Dan, Dan was delighted with the win. And of course, you would be delighted with a win out in, in Italy. It's, mm-hmm. it's fair play, but um, we're looking for a bit more excitement. And it was probably, I hate to say it, apart from the Leinster, Leinster game and the, against the Dragons, it was probably one of the worst games of the weekend to watch. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm sure you can understand, as Richard says, why Dan may not have been overly enamoured at, at what was becoming the, the narrative around the game when, as a coach, you've just achieved achieved your objectives and probably within the dressing room, well, from what he was saying, do you think they were just happy enough come full-time? Oh, well, this is it, right? Like, I don't mean this in any way a knock on Connacht, and not even Connacht, but Connacht of a particular era. But that's where Dan McFarland spent most of his certainly professional rugby life, if you like. So this notion that you can win, win by that margin and not in the eyes of whether it be public or media or ex-pros win well is probably anathema because when he was playing for a large part of his playing career, if you won, it was a good, a good win. There's no such thing as a bad win. And part of it is, I think, just based upon last season, and I think we view these games through the lens of what happened last season, and we view these games now of it's not so much whether you win and get a bonus point, 
equals job done. It's not even if you win, get a bonus point and win by a massive margin and it's seen as job done because we've got in the habit of looking for so much more from performances, safe in the knowledge that when the level of opposition steps up, you're going to need that type of performance. So it's this kind of almost paranoia about being battle-hardened because we all saw what happened last year where Ulster were trouncing everybody and then lost both European games and their European season was over, sorry, their Champions Cup season was over in December. Equally, I think what I would say is I didn't think they played particularly well. I thought there were good performances, but in terms of cohesion, I didn't think it was there. As was pointed out by Dan, and I think as we would have to note to counterbalance that, they made 10 changes, most of them enforced through injury in the back line especially. You had a scrum half who played well but was making his first start. Um, you had a centre pairing that played a lot together last year but was getting a run out for the first time this season. You had to change your back three around. You had a fullback in Will Addison who has played so infrequently over the past well, almost two years really. Yeah. I thought that Zebra did come out pretty well in the first half, defensively anyway, and in a very committed fashion. In the second half, when they got on the wrong side of the referee a bit, and like Richard mentioned, the scrums there, it wasn't a particularly good spectacle. And I think that's maybe part of Dan's issue with the narrative as well. That We've talked about this before, but it's not even so... It's not now... Ulster fans are entertained by the team winning. Ulster fans want to be, want to win and be entertained. Mm. So, like, it was a pretty poor game in terms of spectacle, which also colours the narrative from the fans' perspective and from the media perspective. But, like, I don't think fan or sorry, I don't think Dan cares whether it's an entertaining game because it's a results business. Like talking to Craig Gilroy yesterday, he said it was he really enjoyed playing in the game. And I don't think there's too many people who say they really enjoyed watching it. So there is that disparity there. And I think it's completely it's completely understandable for all the reasons that we've outlined. Yeah, I think... Like I, I, don't, I don't think Michael was wrong to question or say that it was a disjointed performance. And equally, I don't think Dan is wrong to look at it from a different perspective than yeah. the people that are watching it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think an important part of that is that everybody watching it, whether it be from a media or fans point of view, is thinking about the ultimate goal and thinking about any performance that doesn't look like it's good enough to beat Leinster isn't good enough because it's ultimately going to lead to nothing. But from Dan's point of view, I know he spoke at the start of the season, didn't he, about sort of trying to peak at the right time and trying to, to build things. So like it's the second game of the season. Those big crunch matches aren't coming for a while. So if they can just keep winning with bonus points for now and mount things up to picking at the right time, then happy days. But yeah, it is an interesting sort of uh, contrast between those two, those two viewpoints on it. People were talking about Munster beating the Sharks last week in the same fashion by a similarly like heavy scoreline, you know? Yeah. Um, it is part of this because the discrepancy between the best teams and the worst teams is so large. Yeah. Is a part of it. Yeah. No, so it's a, it's an almost backhanded compliment, even though uh, <laughs> Dan didn't view it yeah. that way. <laughs> you can tell Michael, just explain it to Dan and <laughs> that uh, next time. So Nathan uh, Duke was given his first start, of course. That was uh, one of the big talking points in the build-up to the game and was awarded man of the match. So has to go down as a, as a successful full debut. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you guys picked up on this or not, but in his post-match interview, having won man of the match was Nathan Duke asked who they were playing next <laughs> because like he, he there was only two questions and the first one seemed to be just a normal question and then in the next the next one you couldn't hear the question but one it sounded like it was in Italian and two he just said yeah we're playing Benison at home <laughs> so I don't know whether one he speaks good Italian and was able to like work out what was being said to him and two if the question was just do you know who you're playing next week <laughs> I kind of got that impression too from it because I, I thought, well, oh, what did she just ask him there? And then Nathan comes up with a one-line answer and you're kind of going, okay, and that was it. Um, if you were looking for 300 words uh, post-match, <laughs> you would have been struggling big time. <laughs> so what did you make of his performance? I thought he did Johnny pretty or? well. Like, um, it was a difficult game because it was so broken up, I think. You know, difficult for us coming off, but I thought his... Uh, I thought he, he made the right decisions largely. I thought he did well. Um, for a few of the tries, like I wouldn't, um, 
like he got isolated once going for the line, but I don't think it was even necessarily like, I don't think it was egregiously bad decision-making or anything. Like he, it was very close to being a try. He just didn't get there. And then unfortunately they get isolated and give away the penalty. But um, I don't think you could expect, expect much more of him. It obviously wasn't the same, um, you know, headline grabbing, try scoring, yeah. goal kicking performance of a week ago. But uh, I think he played, he played well. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with his box kicking, Jonathan. I thought his box kicking was spot on, which was good to see. His ball distribution was good, maybe a little bit slow at times, but um, and I thought he, he watching him at, watching it a couple of times, I thought maybe he was trying to get himself involved in places where he didn't need to be going to on one or two occasions, but that'll come with experience. Um, I'm not sure. He wasn't my man of the match based on the whole overall game. Um, I would have been looking at Possibly, I'd have been looking at a couple of the props, given the way they had scrummaged against um, against Zebra or forcing a lot of penalties, or or even James Hume, if you like. But um, no, yeah, I, 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 I thought Hume was one of the match by by a good distance. I thought Timoney played well as well. Yeah, and yeah, I hadn't thought about the props, but obviously um, Marty Murr and um, I think it was still Eric Sullivan by that stage, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Yeah, but um, no, I mean, if you're if you're looking at Nathan Duke as uh, down the line, you're going. Yeah, you know, I think he 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 he's ticking a lot of the boxes, and it, it's really good to see because I think on the first podcast earlier in the season I was on, I was kind of a bit questioning of him and a bit doubtful. But I have to say, I'd be I'm I'm more than reassured after that performance. I know it's Zebra, and it, it was a difficult game as well. But um, I'd like to see a bit more of him. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned him there as your uh, your man of the match, James Hume. He's just had a, a a brilliant few years. He just seems to get better and better, and uh, there was evidence of that again on what was it Saturday uh, Saturday evening. Let's do a try and and two assists for him and a a very good performance. Besides, Jonathan, we know uh, we know what you think of him as Ulster's player of the season last year, and he's uh, he's surviving that curse. He is just about so far. Um, I think. The most impressive aspect from his performance for me was just the way that he stood up, if you know what I mean, because you look at it and still 23, I think, but there was no John Kinney, there was no Stuart McCluskey, who would really be, I suppose, the senior members of that back line. And I thought he filled the void in the way that McCluskey did a week ago, to be fair to him. Um, I thought McCluskey really took charge against, um, against Glasgow and then I got a real sense that Hume did the same. Like, if you didn't know anything about the profile of the of the Ulster backline that day, you would have thought that he was, you know, the senior experienced player, and um, sort of trying to calm things down. Like, he, he did get a wee bit lateral on one of those runs, and um, when things did get scrappy, but I thought, like, I just thought, it, in terms of influence, I thought he was by quite a distance the most influential player on the pitch. Yeah, I'd agree with Jonathan there. I, I was very impressed on the game and he, he, he puts himself in the right positions. And, you know, with Will Addison there, and I mean, Craig Gilroy, very instrumental in, in, in two of the tries um, and probably didn't contribute an awful lot else in the game, but at key times he delivered. And um, I think James Hume, and bouncing back the way he did from last week's disappointment as well and, and um, from the yellow card and stuff. I, no, I think him and Stuart McCluskey are probably your best centre partnership there at the moment, but um, I thought James on the whole, very solid performance and head and shoulders above everybody else. Well, we're edging that way already. I think you've maybe already answered the, the question, Richard, but uh, oh, sorry. Th- no, you're okay. The weekly donut. Well, first of all, we have to say congratulations and a huge well done to the weekly donut himself, because I think it was maybe just yesterday that he competed and finished an Ironman in Barcelona yesterday which is something, it's like a tri, like a super triathlon. I'm sure people know what it is. It's like a super triathlon. The run's a marathon, and I'm not sure what the distances of the swim and the, the cycle's 180k. Uh, Donal is uh, not just skilled at asking rugby questions, but also a very, very fit man. So a huge well done. Did there. he do that yesterday and then still get his weekly Donal question in yeah. this morning? Yeah, honestly, he did. That's okay. impressive dedication. Probably recorded a rugby podcast when he was doing the Iron Man. I would say no probably and um, was interviewed by U105 yeah. midway through and everything. You know what he's That's like? Right. Yeah, the whole works. Sure, yeah. mile twenty or something. Yeah. So he asks. Normally, Stuart McCluskey being injured would be a major concern from a ball carrying perspective. However, 
Uh, he says he feels that Ulster have been pretty good at spreading the workload more evenly across the team and some of the potential centre combos have exciting potential. But which combo excites you the most? Richard, we'll start with you because you sort of half answered it there. Is it the human McCluskey that's that's most exciting for you then, yeah? At this moment in time, definitely. Um, Stuart did carry ball. Um, this is Stuart Moore. Did carry ball well on, on Saturday evening but I think Stuart McCluskey nine times out of ten he's going to get you over the gain line um, and he's he's now offloading when he needs to offload and going to ground when he needs to go to ground um, so and the two of them they're exciting together him and Hume are exciting Stuart McCluskey and James Hume are exciting together and they seem to have a real good understanding of each other Admittedly, I would like to see them maybe either one of them either side of the scrum sometimes um, and attack just to, to, to give something a wee bit uh, different. But um, I thought Stuart Moore did well on Saturday evening. But I just think the relationship between McCloskey and Hume is, well, they played more together, obviously. So therefore, it would be a bit more cemented. Mm-hmm. And they seem to know each other. And I think if you look at Hume on Saturday, he went looking to change things. I think when, that, when they were putting so much pressure on Zebra, he was actually going to look to see if he could change things a wee bit, which is good to see. And I think that's where Jonathan was talking about the the senior man there um, looking mm-hmm. to lead. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, do you think, like, I think, well, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I do think most people would probably agree that James Hume and Stuart McCluskey is the, the top centre parent currently. But do you think Stuart Moore has what it takes to be a part of that, like a really exciting parent with James going forward? They're both in their early 20s and it sort of feels like, after he, he broke on by the scene initially. We haven't really talked about Stuart Moore all that much. We're just worried he really No, well, he actually had, uh, he had such a long run to start the season last year. And then, you know, we didn't see him again very much at all in the second half of the yeah. season. So that's probably just why that is. But no, 100%. Like, I think that's, you know, that could be Ulster's centre partnership for, for a very long time, even though there's no way, whatever way you cut it at the minute. And for the next number of years that, the best also team doesn't involve Stuart McCluskey. Like we can sort of we can get into this habit of like prematurely aging players because every so much of the squad is so young. Steve McCluskey will do media now, and Craig Gower had this yesterday, where it's like they're being asked questions like they're thirty five, but like <laughs> Stuart McCluskey's twenty nine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, there's I would say as taxing on the body as the way that McCluskey plays rugby is. He's still got a number of years left, but you could project forward and in eight years' time, Ulster centre pairing could be Murr and Hume. And you think about pairings and relationships and partnerships, and it would be very rare that you would get two young players coming through to form that so close together. Yeah. So obviously it's, it's massively exciting from an Ulster perspective that they have those two guys. And presuming that they can keep them, could have those two guys in the squad for the next decade. But equally, like I say, I wouldn't be uh, writing off McCluskey just yet because he's one of Ulster's, what, two most important players probably over the last three years. Before we really go into the Benetton preview a little later on, but while we're talking about them with McCluskey out, I assume you, you can't see any change to that centre pairing. Human merges to go again. Yeah, well, I mean, the only other thing that I think that you could do, really, obviously, with Luke Marshall had injured as well, is play Addison at 13, which is something we yeah. saw an awful lot more in the early days of his Ulster career. But I don't think that's something I would do. I would just go Hume, Hume and Murr and keep Addison at uh, fullback. Yeah. So as I say, we're we're jumping about. We'll go through that uh, a little later on. But what you mentioned, Will Allison, a, a big day for him on Saturday, and one that we've waited a long time to see. It was his first start and his first try since he did both against Bath. That uh, was in January of last year. So what's that like? Twenty. 21 months uh, and finally he's got a, a start and another try for Ulster Richard it was a, a massive day for Will and just uh, really really great to see after everything he's been through great to have him back on the side his feet are just phenomenal his ability to read the game he's he's in the right places and he will be if he's able to keep fit he's probably going to be the third most important person in the Ulster team <laughs> um, he's he's just such a dynamic player and, and we were really excited about him way back last year before his injuries sorry when he arrived and then he got his injuries and it was so I think it was pretty obvious um, how much they missed him and if he can get a run now I think uh, 
he's your fullback. You want to have him fit for those key games, the big games. You really want to have him fit for those big, big games that are the crunch games in Europe and when you're meeting the likes of Leinster and Munster, the Interpros. But he just brings so much to the team and, and I think he lifts that back line as well. Well, fingers crossed that's his injury where he's over and he uh, he certainly had a feels like he's had a career worth of them there over the last 18 months or whatever it is. So fingers crossed this is the start of, uh, of a very good season for Will at Ulster and uh, it's easy to forget that if he does have that, he'll, he'll probably be straight back into the Ireland squad, you would imagine, John? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, for an awful lot of those guys that played in the summer, the reality of the situation is that there's going to be more competition come November, whether it be boys being back from injury or whether it be guys coming back from the Lions. But basically, whenever he's been fit, he's been there for Ireland since, yeah. uh, you know, since he arrived. Maybe the World Cup being the exception, but... At the same time, a World Cup's a very different beast because you are picking players, partly at least in terms of your squad players, you're picking them on the ability to go every five days, let alone every seven days or every 14 days, you know. But for me, and I've said this before, like I think he's a perfect number 23 at international level because you can put him on the bench and it gives you so many options with your other places, your other replacements, because he can play in so many different positions. Like he can comfortably cover either wing position, fullback, centre, which is just, you know, if you think back to some of the uh, times under Joe Schmidt, when you, know, you had things like Kieran Marmion playing on the wing and stuff like that, that always gets mentioned, you know, to have somebody of the versatility of Addison on your bench is, um, would be a real boost to the squad. Absolutely massive for for Ulster and Ireland. So fingers crossed he can he can stay fit. Another question in from our, our old friend Bior Stout asks: Do Ulster need to actually try a few more fifty twenty twos to encourage the opposition to drop back in defence? Backline is only a threat if it can create space. He says, and flinging the ball wide and loose just won't work against decent teams. So we did talk about this rule change before the start of the season. Two games in now, what have we made of how Ulster have been? utilising it and uh, do you think they should actually be, be utilising it a little bit more? It's been interesting to watch across not even so much Ulster because they, as question mentions there, they haven't really been trying it. Like I think there was one in the first game that looked like it maybe bounced into the 22 but um, came up just the wrong side of the uh, of the marker and that was from Stockdale. Like I don't remember any other instances of it even being tried but to watch the way that other teams have done it, all we've really seen in the Ulster games, there's an increase of people kicking the ball out in the full, which obviously is not was not the intended consequences of this at all. But like it's happened multiple times in both games. I think it like and across rugby in general, the implementation of it so far hasn't been the way that it's been talked about. So it's been talked about as a way to promote attacking rugby. Everyone that's asked about it is excited about it as a way to promote attacking rugby, but it's not really happened in practice yet. And I just wonder if it is something that's not ingrained enough yet. It goes against your instinct of what you've always learned since you started playing the game to kick the ball away more, especially in in transition off counter-attack ball, which is where I think it could actually be the most useful. Mm. There's obviously a call for, you know, if you get bogged down inside your own half to sort of roll the dice. But I think in transition, as a way to flip the field, theoretically, it should work really well. But I'd agree with the question wholeheartedly. Like, it is interesting how little it appears that Ulster have attempted to utilise it over the first two games. It's been interesting watching, particularly the Rugby Championship, New Zealand and South Africa. New Zealand don't use it at all, or at least very rarely, rarely use it because they like to keep ball in hand. Um, whereas South Africa have used it and used it probably not an awful lot, but anytime they've used it, it's been reasonably effective. But I agree because I keep watching the games at the weekend to see, and even in the Premiership, you don't see it being used by teams a lot. And I'm wondering just, is it something that will come with time? I was certainly, when the law came, was introduced, you kind of went, oh, that's going to make it interesting now. You need to maybe to have two out halves in your back line to do the kicking, one at 10 and one at 12. And defenders would have to lie back a little bit deeper. And you were looking to see how teams would line out. But as Jonathan has said there, you haven't seen it utilised very much by anybody, um, whether it be at the top level or club level or whatever, even my son was talking about how you would use it at school. Um, and I'm going, well, I don't think you need to use it there at the moment, at this moment in time. But, <laughs> but we've been watching to see if it has been used by teams, and it's not been used widely, which is interesting. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. As we'll see if that changes over the, the weeks and months ahead, it's certainly something that everybody will be keeping a little eye on. We can't move on from this game without talking about the nominated Gareth Hanna player of the season, Ethan McElroy, who moved out to the wing rather than fullback where he started the first game of the season and was rewarded with two tries. Should have been man of the match, surely. <laughs> I still think Hume is one of the match when you look at the sort of stats that he had. I think six defenders beating a try, we assist 60, 60 odd meters with ball in hand. Like, I, uh, this is just the Jonathan Bradley player versus the Gareth Hanna player debate now. No, I like to spread these things around. Like, just because Hume got my vote for player of the season doesn't mean that I've adopted him in the way that you adopted him. Oh, really? like, okay, you know, no, I do, I do. 100%. I, uh, it's actually variations better for me because the more varied the best players are, the more different things there are to talk about week to week when you're writing about the same team every single day of life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like decent start from him, obviously switching from uh, having started the season at fullback and then going into wing because while obviously we've talked about Addison there, you think Addison is still the first choice fullback, but I think certainly in terms of injuries and international call-ups you'd think that you would get possibly more of a crack on the wing than you might do at fullback Mm -hmm. obviously what they do with Mike Laurie plays massively into this because you know he said that he thinks he's going to be used more as a 10 this year and he wants to be used more as a 10 but while they have been using him as a 10 it's not been an awful lot at all so far I would guess he's probably played the least amount of minutes over the players that featured in both games so far and need to look at it so that's a part of it but with Stockdale out and Stockdale might come back this week and Balakun out, it's a chance to lay down a marker. Now, Dan McFarland has already said when I asked him about it last week that, you know, McElroy was in his starting back three to start the season on merit off the basis of what he'd done in preseason and what he'd done against Saracens in the preseason games. So he started off well and I suppose the challenge comes in trying to do enough to keep your place when uh, when those other boys come back. It's nice to have these, these issues if you're Dan McFarland, certainly. So when we mentioned Leinster very briefly earlier that they struggled very much to beat the Dragons in a very low-scoring game, what was it, 7-6 it finished, wasn't it, in in Wales. How much hope, Richard, does this give Ulster going forward that there might be a little chink here for Leinster or was this just a bit of a one-off and they actually managed to get through it anyway? Yeah, I think it's, if we go back to... The Ulster Zebra game. I mean, Ulster got through that game and won it quite okay. They won it quite handsomely in the way we were talking about the performance. It was Leicester's, it was Leicester's delivery that was that was shockingly poor. And if the Dragons had a, had a made more of it, they could well have won that game. It was I mean the, the last six minutes of it were frantic, and you kind of thought, right, Dragons are going to win this. And then some somebody kicks the ball away, and you kind of go, why would you do that with two minutes to go when you have the, mm. the ball in your hand? You could go for a drop goal to win it. You didn't see South Africa doing that on Saturday morning against New Zealand. Um, but on one performance, uh, Leinster are still missing a lot of players as well. So are Ulster too, of course, and so are, I mean, a lot of the clubs. So it probably does offer a little bit of, little bit of hope, but Leinster will still be the team to beat this year. There's no question about it. And when, when they're playing... Playing well, they play exceptionally well. They, I'm not sure what the ins and outs of it were on Saturday, they or Sunday, sorry, Sunday afternoon. Maybe it was the partisan atmosphere at the Dragons, the maybe the new pitch there. But I wouldn't be getting overly excited that uh, that that's going to be the way Leinster are going to play every week. There's no mm. doubt about it. Just in the same way that Ulster will not play the way they played against Zebra every week. Yeah, yeah. At least Ulster are that uh, that one bonus point up on them now, which uh, will take any small victories. And what about the side of the idea of the benefit of this competition or the benefit for teams like Ulster of this competition? Because you just need to beat Leinster once. Like it doesn't matter how many points ahead they finish of you in the final table, really, because we've seen, you know, 2013 being the prime example that nobody remembers who finishes top of the league. People remember who wins the final. So, like, not that Leinster are infallible, but it is a reminder that this is a team that can have a bad day because any team can have a bad day. And if you catch them on a bad day, it could be you um, celebrating winning a trophy at the end of the year, which is what everybody keeps banging on about and has done for the past 16 years. Yeah, that's the sign of hope we're looking for right there. So while we're talking about the the couple of Irish teams here then, Mark Dempsey has asked, do you agree with Andy Friend's comments that the Irish teams are adversely affected by the new URC format? 
and he asks, is this a deliberate attempt to weaken them? Do you think the format will be enforced for minimum of five years, as some reports have suggested? Obviously, I think, well, I had said before we started recording, were the Irish teams not always adversely affected a little bit in that they had to play each other more often than any other teams had to play them and you know they're playing the other strongest teams in the competition but has that uh, has that been heightened now uh, by this new format and uh, and what do, you, what do you think of it do you agree with Andy friend it's an interesting one uh, um and I, I suppose Andy made the comments before the competition started and I suppose we all thought the South African teams were maybe going to bring a bit more to the table than they have done at the moment but it's to do with the structure of the competition, um, and they have four shield competitions. So the four Irish provinces are in a shield. You have the Scottish and the two Italians and another conference, if you like, and then you have the four South Africans and the four Welsh. And the winners of those will automatically get a European place. So that takes four out of the eight. And then it'll be the next best four place teams in the league when you remove them out. But it's important to remember that the Irish shield has not been competed for just by the four Irish provinces. It's all the results of all the games they play in their 18 rounds of the of the league competition. So it's not which just... Which is a nonsense. Which is a low... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We had a chance to actually reintroduce an interprovincial championship. That was hit exactly, get, Jonathan. Yeah. Instead, which, we just no, get a for who does the best against the Cheetahs or, well, a team in the league would help, the Stormers and the Sharks. <laughs> like. You're absolutely right, Jonathan. And when I saw that, and talking about this Irish Shield, I thought, right, here we go. We're going to have an inter-pro competition yeah. within the league. And I thought that would have been absolutely fantastic because those games are, they are standout fixtures throughout the season, there's no doubt. Um, and it's disappointing that that's not the case, but the format is what it is. Now, if you look back to last year, it was Leinster Munster played in the final. The year before was Leinster Ulster in the final. Leinster have won it the past four years. Connacht have won this competition back in 20, was it 2013? 2016. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Um, so you were there. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I was there as a fan, though. I was there as a fan <laughs> for Connacht. <laughs> um, if if you look at it and you look at last year, the the two conferences as they were, and I didn't put the conferences down side by side just to see how this. If you were to put all the teams from first to it was it twelve teams last year. Um, first of 12 where they were finished but the four Irish provinces finished top so and they've dominated that and that's one of the reasons why we talked about the league not being as competitive as it was and you were hoping the South Africans would increase this uh, bit more competition within it and that obviously some of the Welsh sides and Scottish sides would bring more to the table but Ulster, Munster and Connacht could still qualify for the European Cup anyway if they were to finish in the top eight as such they could well could well do. So are they trying to stop Irish dominance? I don't think so. Um, Irish success is built on the success that Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Connacht are bringing to the table. Um, mm -hmm. So they can't knock that in any way. Um, the disappointment thing for me is so far is the South African contribution. I mean, it was not from four mm -hmm. at the weekend. And who would have thought that after two weeks, maybe that the Bulls and Sharks, who were supposed to be the two stronger South African sides, would be sitting at the bottom of the table with nil points. Yeah, it's just a balance, like isn't it? It's a balance between how much qualifying for the European Cup should be a strict meritocracy, and how much of it is representing European rugby. Like, yeah, yeah. Let's call it the European Cup rather than the Champions Cup, even though it only has three champions in it, right? So let's call it the European Cup. The European Cup theoretically should look to draw from as wide a range of European countries as it can. So, in the same way that whoever finished Leicester Leicester finished fifth in the premiership right in the same way that Leicester are better that a better team than the champions of Lithuania the champions of Lithuania get a crack at the Champions League and Leicester don't because it's not strictly the 32 best teams in European football in the same way that the Champions Cup is not strictly the 24 best teams in European rugby obviously the waters are muddied somewhat by the fact that all these teams are in the same league but there's nothing really can be done about that so it comes down to uh do you want the pro 14s or sorry the erc's eight best teams in european competition or do you want a european cup to actually be a european cup and this isn't having to go at andy friends at all because i can understand why he's looking at it and being like i'm bearing in mind you know you talk about is this an attempt to weaken irish domination and it's not it was basically 
self-interest and you can look at the way you know the irish teams opposed this step and the other teams were in favor of it which is why it ended up coming through so it wasn't oh you know we have to weaken the irish stranglehold it was like well this makes it more likely for us to get into the champions cup which is Mm -hmm. what we want to do but there reaches a point when you have to say well if you're that good you can you know richard made the point there this doesn't mean that the fourth best team from ireland can't qualify for europe because they still can the assumption is that leinster are going to be the top irish team right and then you take in all the other shields and then there is four more places for the likes of Munster, Ulster, Connacht, the Sharks, the Stormers, either Glasgow or Edinburgh, possibly both Glasgow and Edinburgh if Benetton keep uh, racking up the points the way they are. So last year, for instance, this wouldn't have made any difference. Connacht still would have qualified, right? So they have it in their own hands to qualify by, right? I understand that they have a tougher fixture list than the other teams because they have to play, you know, their three extra fixtures, if you like, are against what I still believe to be the three best teams in the competition. So it's weighted against them in that regard. But I find it very difficult to complain too much about the fact that a European Cup should be representative of Europe rather than be the 24 best teams in Europe. Europe and South Africa. (laughs) Europe and South Africa, yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Calling it the European Cup would be almost as ridiculous (laughs) as calling it the Champions Cup, you're right. (laughs) It's almost as if ERC have, are kind of going back to the way it used to be where Ireland were allowed to have so many qualifiers. Italy always had a qualifier and ended up bottom off their pool. If you got if, if you drew Benetton or Zebra in the or Aroni, as they might have been at that time, in, in the European Cup, you were going, well, there's 10 points. And it, it kind of slanted one pool from the others, you know. And I think it's whoever finishes one to eight should qualify for the for the European Cup, irrespective of it's four Irish and four mm. Welsh or four South Africans and two Welsh and two Irish, whatever it is, you know. If that's if that's what it if that's what it is. And then it doesn't give the European Cup answer sorry, European answer to the African Cup the, <laughs> the feel that it has it has supposed to be. It is an interesting debate, certainly, and uh, one that I'm sure people will continue to have their say on. I do think, uh, for uh, what my unconsidered opinion is worth, that all four Irish provinces will probably still be in the Champions Cup. I'd back Connacht to, to make it into that. But Margaret was thinking that the Sharks were going to qualify, say, as an example. So it would have been Munster, Ulster, the Sharks. And then there would have only been one other place for everybody else. But, like, you know, the Sharks have zero points so far. So, um, <laughs> so pretty good head start for everybody else Absolutely. I, th- I think the other thing to look at it is Leinster and Connacht have played the supposed strongest South African side at home certainly I'm sure Jake White and the boys got a rude awakening when they went arrived in Galway to the wet and the wind um, Ulster have to go away to play them on uh, later on in the season and you know Connacht have got Connacht have got five points against the Bulls, which I don't think a lot of teams are going to do when they travel out to South Africa. Mm. Yeah, no, interesting, an interesting head start for them certainly. So, Ulster's next game is on Friday, seven thirty-five at home to Benetton, one of the also one of the five teams in the league who have uh, got two wins from two. They started with victories over the Stormers and Edinburgh, both of those at home. In Italy, so Big Jim asks when the Benetton bandwagon bus rolls into town on Friday, given their form and Ulster's form, is a win still a given, just like it used to be? They are Rainbow Cup champions, don't you know? Ah, the Rainbow Cup, our favourite competition, eh? (laughs) They've won more than Ulster have in the last 16 years. They have, yes, and and, I mean, Benetton were very impressive in their win over the Boodles uh, in the final last season. It's certainly not a given at this moment in time against Benetton. I was particularly impressed with them last weekend, the way they they fought right to the bitter end, and and I I have to say I was quite pleased when I saw them getting the drop goal to win the game. I expect Ulster to win this game. Don't get me wrong, they're at home. I do expect them to win this game, but whether they'll get get it as easy as they have done in the past against Benetton at home? I don't think so. Um, five points might be a bit of a push this week. What do you think, Jonathan? Certainly an increase in performance levels from last weekend required? Yeah, absolutely. I think Will Addison's already already spoken about that, and I think everyone is aware that in terms of form, this will be a big uh, form of the opposition. This will be a big step up. And But like, I, mean, I don't think beating Teresa... <laughs> As much as they lost all their games last year, I don't think beating Treviso has been a given for a while. Like, I, you know, they got the draw here not that long ago. 
and they've been steadily building through the years. You know, they made the knockout stages one year. Um, I do think that just their form last year in the Pro 14 was the was the anomaly, the the speed bump, if you like. And I think they're much more the team that we saw in the Rainbow Cup. Admittedly, other teams weren't as focused upon it as maybe they were. But like, they, like they, this is a decent team that's that's coming to Belfast. And we talked about it with Zebra. This is a team as well that is going to benefit more than anybody else from the structure of the league where they're going to have their internationals available to them more often because obviously they're bulk suppliers to the Italian national team and don't have the same depth but have a good squad and you know they're dangerous um, dangerous wingers we saw that in Belfast last year they've lost Garbisi but in they seem to be able to produce an awful lot of tens at the minute so you know another young lad coming through he played well at the weekend like they're a good team to watch they're dangerous they're physical not telling anybody anything they don't know here, but it's going to be a tough game on Friday. I suppose the other factor is it's going to be Benetton's first away game of the season. So this is the first time yeah. they're having to travel out of, if you, if you like, their, their comfort zone to a degree. So it'll be interesting to see how they travel as well. Um, but I, I agree with you, Jonathan, they're, they're a well, well-drilled well side and, and we saw that at the weekend. And um, it's probably going to be, I mean, Glasgow was a big challenge for Ulster Um You've got a team that has won a cup recently coming to mm-hmm. your backyard, and you need to be you need to be aware of it. I think the Bulls went to Italy that time and, and and weren't aware of what was going to happen at all, and they were taken by surprise. And Ulster don't want to be taken by surprise on Friday night. So, as regards the Ulster team, we've already said we're expecting Human Moore to continue their partnership uh, in the centre. So that means Will Addison staying at fullback. Will we potentially have any of the the guys who missed last week coming back from injury? What do we know, Jacob Stockdale potentially? Yeah, Jacob Stockdale has been talked about as being monitored this week. Rob Little as well. He's probably somebody that we haven't really spoken about spoken about this season. Just another back three option to add to that list of. Uh, list of players we were sort of reeling off other than that it looks like it's pretty much as you are Jordy's obviously had a bit of a bit of a setback with his injury which is bad news for um for both him and Ulster and just trying to think where else um John Cooney's yeah. still out yeah John Cooney's still out could be possibly for another few games like we're not far away from the end of this block now you know once yeah once we get through Friday night there's only two games before the uh the break, you know. Um so like we talked about it with Dan Dan at the weekend, obviously um just looking at the amount of injuries they have. I think they had uh, was it ten international ten Irish captain internationals out at the weekend and it's a lengthy injury list for this time of the year. Now admittedly it started quite large as well with Henderson McGrath, Marshall, Isachukwe, uh and Murphy all out injured. And then to lose a few from game in between game one and game two. So I suppose the positive is that nobody got injured at the weekend. And um, obviously the overriding positive is that you've still 10 points from 10 available. So looking at this block, this first block, I think it was always important to me that Ulster banked as many points as possible and set themselves up well, because there is going to be a really testing run sort of finishing this first block and going away to Connacht. Well, not going away to Connacht, going to Dublin to play Connacht. And then, you know, you've got a nasty enough trip to the Ospreys thrown in there. You've got Leinster and then you're into, uh, sorry, those fixtures over, right? But then you've got um, the European games as well. So, like, not that you'd want to be going through injuries, but compared to last year, I'd say also we're much happier to have this lengthened injury list now in the hope that they get those boys back for the end of October, the end of November, and especially into December when which to me really looks like the first key chunk of this season. So one man for whom it will be a big game on Friday evening is Rob Herring, who's set to make his 200th appearance for Ulster. Just to steal a stat out of your story in today's Belfast Telegraph, Jonathan, the seventh player to reach that landmark for the province. And... uh, Thoroughly deserved as well. Obviously, he played second fiddle for for so long, but uh, he's coming into his own now. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a really important uh, player for Ulster, and we talked about it at length um, on this podcast before about how maybe don't really think he gets the credit that he really deserves elsewhere. Like as somebody that last time we checked was still Ireland's starting hooker, mm-hmm. but yeah, to like two hundred. To factor in the presence of Roy Best, 
and to factor in being away with international duty to reach 200 is a real milestone it's a real testament to your durability and your commitment i think more than anything else like obviously a bad player is not going to get 200 games for a team like ulster mm. you know a bad player is not going to have 200 professional games in their career because you're just not going to get given the opportunity but even when once you reach yeah. that level there's still so many players that don't reach that mark because of very you know whether it be whether it be injuries or whether it be you know form dropping off at the end of their careers or whatever but like really the sort of biggest thing to rob i think it's just been his consistency over the years like he doesn't have too many bad games ever and he's been a real a real steadying presence for us or obviously we've seen him he's been captain of the side he's been vice captain of the side and by virtue of his standing in the squad now as one of their irish starters when they probably only have three you would probably say at last count gives him i would guess even greater authority around the place as well the only unfortunate thing is that, you know, you talk about the other six that have reached it and also have only won one of these games. So um, it's proved something of a jinx in the, in the recent <laughs> past. Who was the one? Paul Marshall. Um, now, his was against Benetton, if you're looking for oh, okay. uh, there we go. some there we reason go. to believe that this curse won't strike on Friday night. <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds just about, uh, about what we're looking to hear. Uh, Richard, yes, just Jordy's been brilliant. Oh. Rob has been, he has, there's no doubt about that. And I think Jonathan has covered it well there um, for, for him to get to 200 caps in his situation with being number two to Rory Best over so many years is fantastic. I think one of the nice things about this for Rob is that there's going to be fans in the stadium on Friday night. And yeah. we've seen a few players reach milestones over the past year, maybe not as big as these, but I think it's just going to be great that he's going to see how the how the Ulster fans feel about him and to run out into a stadium where there's going to be stand up for the Ulster men bearing out. Certainly I found that it was great two weeks ago when I was there for the uh, Glasgow game. It was, it, was, it was great to be back in a normal environment. And I think that's one of the big things that Rob will be able to take away from this is having the fans applaud him and cheer him when he comes out. So we shall see what we see when uh, with that one. Fingers crossed, Ulster's 100% record will continue on Friday evening. But before we go, we have one more question to address, which is certainly a very interesting one from a certain Mark Robson. Uh, he points out that, well, first of all, he says, I've heard that Samoa have pulled out of the game, but why is Dwayne Vermeulen listed as involved in a Baba's squad that was to play Samoa? Uh, Samoa on the same day that Leinster are due to play Ulster. Uh, probably more than just Mark wondering about this one. Just as a point of clarification, Vermeulen wasn't announced as playing in this game yesterday. Vermeulen was announced as playing in this game before he signed for Ulster. He's been announced as playing in this game for over a month. So it's not a case of he signed for Ulster and then has signed up to this game. It's the other way around. Other, I suppose, important points of clarification are that like Quaid Cooper's been a nice as playing in this squad and has since said on Twitter that he's never agreed to play and will not be playing. <laughs> so aside from the fact that it's not even clear if the game's going to happen, there's an awful lot of question marks still around different players' involvements. I don't think personally that Vermeulen would have been playing in that Leinster game anyway. Now, Ulster have been asked about his arrival date and it's all vague enough so far, but to think that he would play three games for the Springboks on back-to-back Saturdays, arrive at Ulster at the earliest on the Monday and then be involved on the Saturday, I don't think would be in line with the type of team selections that we normally see. In the same way that, you know, if Henderson's playing three times for Ireland in consecutive weekends in November, I don't think he'd be playing in that Leinster game either. Like that Leinster game is not going to be full strength sides because the players that are heavily involved in the autumn internationals aren't going to play like in the same way that they never play. But if Dwayne Vermeulen's coming off the back of those games uh, on consecutive Saturdays, he needs time off. So he's not going to get time off if he's playing for the Baba. So then does that, like that's at the start of a of a run of games for Ulster uh, there when you have that Leinster game followed by Ospreys and then Claremont and, and Saints. So if he plays in that game, surely it still delays his arrival at Ulster? I don't think he'll be allowed to play in the Baba squad, to be totally totally honest. I think they'll have something will have been done 
with Ulster and Dwayne to say, look, hold on, you know, can we have you available for the, the week yeah. after the Leinster game even, possibly? Because the last thing you want him to do is go out and play for the Babas after three big games with South Africa and end up hurting himself. And his start is delayed even further. Now, he could well hurt himself in the first South African game. Let's hope not. But Ulster will probably look to do everything they can to make sure that he's with them for the week after, if not the week mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. Well, I, like, I'd, be, I'd be pretty surprised if it happens. And I don't think it would be a particularly good look. But equally, I wouldn't think that he's figuring in Ulster's plans. Like people can say, like, if he can play for the Babas, why can't he play for Ulster? But the Babas, by definition, are a scratch outfit that are thrown together. So the fact that, you know, <laughs> if you're rocking up on Monday to train with them for the first time is what the Babas are as a concept. Whereas if somebody's landing in with Ulster on the Monday to play in, regardless of whether the internationals are playing or not, a big game on the Saturday, I don't, I just, I'll put it this way, it would be very out of line with everything that we always see with Ulster team selections. What an impressive display, Jonathan, at the weekend, at the end of that uh, rugby championship game. And when you see him doing that there, you're kind of going, my goodness, we really have got a gem of a player here. It it was just amazing. Yeah, like for all the talk about him being 35 and whatever, and um, to be essentially affecting the most important play of the game really in the 79th minute with 35 seconds on the clock yeah uh, it's not too bad for somebody that uh through no evidence really but just through what it says in his birth certificate people are concerned about whether or not he's going to be past it or not um but anyway, like <laughs> unbelievable test match like the most i've enjoyed yeah. a game in a very 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 long time and um Completely different to <laughs> test matches that we've seen. Uh, yeah, totally. That we've seen recently, but like for Merlin, just the, like the sheer amount of work that he gets through, and this, the, you know, this isn't one of these things where you're saying all oh, the work that he gets through as a sort of code for he doesn't show up that well, or you know, you don't notice him that often or whatever. Like some of the uh, some of the work that he does around South Africa's mall and stuff. Yeah. For what is. To see him add that to what is already theoretically a strength of Ulster is going to be really interesting to watch unfold between uh, between that Babas game and <laughs> the end of the season. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I'm looking forward to seeing him with the Ulster jersey on, now, I have to say. Absolutely. Um, he looked well in really the test. It was a brilliant <laughs> test match on Saturday. It really was. Sorry, Gareth. No, not at all. That was uh, brilliant as always, Richard. And that's about all we have time for uh, this week. So... We shall be back next week to look back at what hopefully will be another bonus point win over Benetton and ahead to Ulster's first clash with one of the New South African teams in the URC. The well, I can't even remember what my mock name for this competition is anymore. We'll just, I'll just, ultimate, I'll just ultimate rugby. Of course, how could I forget that one's against the, the Sydney <laughs> Lions on Friday week? So next week we'll be looking ahead to that one and back at Benetton. But for this week, thank you very much for joining us once again, Richard Mulligan. An absolute pleasure. And uh, I give you a wave at the TV on Friday night when I'm watching the game here. And uh, our resident rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley, thank you very much once again for your wisdom. Yes, thank you. And I've been Gareth Hanna. I still am Gareth Hanna. But thank you very much for listening.